everyone, and welcome back to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Imagine for a moment that you're the son or daughter of a legend, a real bona fide everybody knows their name legend, like singers Frank Sinatra and Hank Williams, or history's Davy Crockett, or George Washington, like internationally known musician Ravi Shankar, or world heavyweight champions Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier, or baseball great Barry Bonds, or you might have been born the son of Caesar and Cleopatra, or the son of John Rolfe and Pocahontas, or of American founding father and statesman Benjamin Franklin. What was it like growing up in their shadow? Were these sons and daughters constantly judged by their ability to live up to their parents' reputation and status? Were they born with the same gifts? Did their son or daughter's status give them access to a world closed off to others? Did they try to follow their parents' footsteps or reject their parents' reputation and follow a different course? For me, as a history buff, it's often the little-known stories that interest me the most, and digging into the topic of sons and daughters has been an incredible journey. A great place to start is with 60s musician Ravi Shankar and his very accomplished daughter. Ravi Shankar was best known as an Indian musician and composer of Hindustani classical music. In the mid-60s, his music crossed over into pop, and he became known for inspiring the Beatles' George Harrison regarding incorporating Indian music in pop music after he was introduced to Shankar by David Crosby and Roger McGuinn of The Birds. Harrison would learn to play the sitar, and with that instrument produced the famous piece Norwegian Wood, a song which helped bring the sitar, as well as other Indian instruments, to pop music. It's important to note that Ravi Shankar did play at Woodstock in 1969, but dropped those type of appearances due to their fans and performers' connection with drug use, which he felt corrupted music. Born in Brooklyn, New York in 1979 to American concert producer Sue Jones and Ravi Shankar, Nora Jones was born with a gift for music which she took to the top on her own after changing her name at age 16, soon after her mom and dad were divorced. In a 2012 interview with Rolling Stone magazine, Nora Jones spoke about her relationship with her father, world-acclaimed musician Ravi Shankar, a relationship which most press reports have described for years as distant. Nora was born Gitali Nora Jones Shankar, and as many of you already know, is a highly accomplished American singer, songwriter, and pianist. She's won almost countless awards and has sold more than 50 million records worldwide since her career began to rise in 2001 as a result of her years spent working nightclubs and studying music, especially jazz. Billboard named her the top jazz artist of the 2000 through 2009 decade. She has won nine Grammy Awards and was ranked 60th on Billboard magazine's artists of the 2000 through 2009 decade chart. She was a natural as a kid, singing in church and in high school in Grapevine, Texas, where she and her mom went to live after her mom divorced Ravi Shankar in 1982. In Texas, she began taking voice and piano lessons, and has said since that she was inspired greatly by the music of Billie Holiday and Bill Evans. She attended the University of North Texas majoring in jazz, and worked hard at her trade before finally returning to New York in 1999 where fame soon followed. The influential sitar master Ravi Shankar was 59 when Jones was born, and she saw him only sporadically growing up. I don't like talking about him, 
because he doesn't have anything to do with me or my music, Jones told Rolling Stone in 2004. Jones sparked a minor controversy in 2003 when she didn't specifically mention her father in any of her various acceptance speeches at that year's Grammys, which she and her 2002 debut, Come Away With Me, dominated. She later told Oprah Winfrey why in an interview. She said, I thanked everybody, my mom and my entire family. My dad is included in that, Jones said in the July 2003 issue of Winfrey's magazine. My mom was involved in the daily stress of making this record. We talk every day on the phone, no matter what. I talk to my dad every five months, so it's not like I dissed him by not singling him out. I didn't think it was appropriate for me to thank him because he didn't help me with the record. It's not that he isn't supportive, it's just that I don't talk to him that often. As the daughter of a music legend, she is a self-made star, and we wish her the best. It bears mentioning that apparently music fame runs in the family, as her half-sister, Anushika Shankar, is a known musician as well. Born in the turbulent times as the son of a union between Julius Caesar and Cleopatra, Caesarian, the last pharaoh of Egypt in the years dating from September 2, 44 B.C. to the 12th of August, 30 B.C., was the last pharaoh of Egypt in the years dating from September 2nd, 44 B.C. to the 12th of August in 30 B.C. And he had challenges from the start. Caesarian was born in Egypt on June 23rd, 47 B.C. His mother Cleopatra insisted that he was the son of Julius Caesar, and while he was said to have inherited Caesar's looks and manner, Caesar did not officially acknowledge him. Caesarian spent two of his infant years from 46 to 44 B.C. in Rome, where he and his mother were Caesar's guests. Cleopatra hoped that her son would eventually succeed his father as the head of the Roman Republic, as well as of Egypt. But after Caesar's assassination on the 15th of March, 44 B.C., Cleopatra and Caesarian returned to Egypt with the hope of surviving the fast turnover of rulers in Rome. Caesarian was named co-ruler of Egypt by his mother on September 2nd, 44 B.C., at the age of three, although he was pharaoh in name only, with Cleopatra keeping actual authority. It's not easy for a three-year-old to issue orders to adults, although if you ask some parents, somehow they find a way. Cleopatra compared her relationship to her son with that of the Egyptian goddess Isis and her divine child Horus. And if you enjoy these ancient myths, which are great stories. Try the new Myths from Parcast, which we highly recommend. Soon Cleopatra and Antony got together and started producing offspring, to which they started giving conquered land, probably strategically, to consolidate their power within the family. In 34 BC, Antony granted further eastern lands and titles to Caesarian and to his own three children with Cleopatra in what was called the Donations of Alexandria at the same time naming Caesarian as a god, a son of a god, and king of kings. So this kid had quite a reputation to uphold, as well as a target on his back. Enter Julius Caesar's adopted son, Octavian, to whom murder was just another name for corporate advancement. In addition to making Caesarian a son of god and king of kings, Antony also declared Caesarian to be Caesar's true son and heir. This declaration was a direct threat to Octavian, 
whose claim to power was based on his status as Julius Caesar's grand-nephew and adopted son. These proclamations in large part caused the fatal breach in Antony's relations with Octavian, who used Roman resentment over territory donations to gain support for war against Antony and Cleopatra. And war they did. After the defeat of Antony and Cleopatra at the Battle of Actium in 31 B.C., Cleopatra seems to have groomed Caesarion to take over as sole ruler without his mother, knowing her time on earth was short as Roman armies were hunting both she and Antony. She may have intended to go into exile, perhaps with Antony, who may have hoped that he would be allowed to retire as Lepidus had. Octavian searched high and low for Caesarion, as well as Antony and Cleopatra, his object being to kill them and remove any threat to the throne. But as it turned out, Cleopatra had sent Caesarion, who was 17 years old at the time, to the Red Sea port of Berenice for safety, as part of plans for an escape to India by way of Ethiopia, and he made it, along with a vast hoard of treasure. But he was lured back by false promises of remaining as the pharaoh of the kingdom of Egypt. And if you ever want to study a country with an incredibly rich history, and one that you might never expect, try Ethiopia. So Caesarion, at age 17, was living safe in India, surrounded by fabulous wealth, and also by snakes in the grass serving as his advisors, the deadliest one being Rodon, his tutor, who persuaded him to go back, on the ground that Octavian Caesar invited him to take the kingdom. History doesn't tell us how many shekels Rodon received for this bit of treachery, which ended up working, as Caesarion left India ostensibly to take the throne in Egypt. Octavian and his army captured the city of Alexandria on the 1st of August, 30 B.C., the date that marks the official annexation of Egypt to the Roman Republic and the end of the Ptolemaic Empire. In short, no more pyramids. Around this time, Mark Antony and Cleopatra died, traditionally said to be by suicide, although very likely suicide at the point of a sword. Once Octavian had the last pharaoh, the 17-year-old Caesarian, in his hands, according to legend, he strangled him, thus guaranteeing he, Octavian, with Cleopatra and Antony dead, and Caesarian as well, absolute, uncontested control of Egypt. Better luck next life, Caesarian. From the concert halls of New York City and the vast deserts of Egypt, we take you now to a humble hospital in Hoboken where little Francis Albert Sinatra was born. And wow, did he leave a family tree full of talent behind. Sinatra, as most of you know, was an American singer and motion picture actor who became one of the most sought-after performers in the entertainment industry. Nicknamed Old Blue Eyes in later years, Sinatra enjoyed a multitude of success in both music and film. In 1953, he won an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for his role in the film From Here to Eternity, and his music success for five decades is the stuff of legend. Sinatra was the only child of his Italian immigrant parents. His father, Antony Martin Sinatra, was a fireman and professional boxer, fighting under the name Marty O'Brien. His mother, Natalie, was very active in the politics of the local Democrat Party. All three of Sinatra's children with his first wife, Nancy, followed their father into the entertainment industry. His oldest daughter, Nancy, is an actress and singer, 
and best known for her hit song, These Boots Are Made for Walking. His son, Frank Sinatra Jr., has also enjoyed a successful career as a singer, songwriter, and conductor, and bears an amazing resemblance to his dad in voice and looks. Sinatra's youngest child, Tina, is a film producer and actress. She co-produced the television miniseries Sinatra, which was nominated in 1993 for an Emmy Award for Outstanding Miniseries. Sinatra was married a total of four times. He married his second wife, actress Ava Gardner, in 1951 and divorced in 1957. He then wed actress Mia Farrow in 1966. The marriage only lasted two years, but some say the relationship may have continued at least 21 years longer, resulting in the birth of Satchel Ronan O'Sullivan Farrow. In short, Ronan Farrow, born December 19, 1987, who, for those of you hearing this for the first time, is an American journalist, lawyer, and former government advisor. Farrow and most folks in the know swear he is the son of actress Mia Farrow and filmmaker Woody Allen. But the striking look-alike pictures of Ronan and Frank, and even Woody Allen's latest expression of doubt as to his real paternity, continue to raise eyebrows. Either way, Ronan is a star reporter and knows how to get behind a story just as well as Frank could get behind a microphone. Farrow's articles in The New Yorker helped uncover the Harvey Weinstein sexual abuse allegations. For this reporting, The New Yorker won the 2018 Pulitzer Prize for Public Service, sharing the award with The New York Times. Farrow's subsequent investigations exposed similar allegations against Eric Schneiderman and Les Moonves, which led to the resignations of both in 2018. How would you like to be born to a famous dad that you never got a chance to know? Enter Randall Hank Williams Jr., born in 1949, to a legendary father who died when Hank was only four, and a mother he didn't always get along with. His dad did stick him with an unusual nickname, Bo Cephas, which was the name of a ventriloquist dummy used by a grand old Opry comedian. At least he didn't name him Sue. I'm sure you Johnny Cash fans will appreciate that one. Hank Jr.'s musical style is often considered a blend of southern rock, blues, and traditional country. He's had his share of ups and downs and survived it all. One of his musical mantras being that country boys can survive, which in his case is aptly titled. After his father's death in 1953, when Hank Jr. was still a toddler, he was raised by his mother, Audrey Williams. After his father's death, a number of contemporary musicians visited his home, probably trying to help out Hank's wife and son, and they influenced and taught Hank various music instruments and styles. Among these figures of influence were Johnny Cash, Fats Domino, Earl Scruggs, Lightning Hopkins, and Jerry Lee Lewis. So it can safely be said that he had a pretty good team of musical mentors from an early age. Hank Williams Jr. first stepped on the stage and sang his father's songs when he was eight years old. In 1964, he made his recording debut with Long Gone Lonesome Blues, one of his father's many classic songs. He attended John Overton High School in Nashville, where he would bring his guitar to music class and play for pep rallies and performances of the choir. Williams provided the singing voice of his father in the 1964 film Your Cheatin' Heart, which was a great film. He also recorded an album of duets 
with recordings of his father, sort of in the same vein as Nat King Cole and his daughter Natalie. Although Williams' recordings earned him numerous country hits throughout the 1960s and early 70s with his role as a Hank Williams impersonator, he became disillusioned with that and severed ties with his mother. By the mid-70s, Hank Williams Jr., while recording a series of moderately successful songs, began a heavy pattern of both drug and alcohol abuse. Upon moving to Alabama and in an attempt to refocus both his creative energy and his troubled personal life, he began playing music with Southern rock musicians including Waylon Jennings, Toy Caldwell, and Charlie Daniels. In 1975, he cut the album Hank Williams Jr. and Friends, which is often considered his watershed album and was the product of those friendships and collaborations. In 1977, he recorded and released One Night Stands and The New South and worked closely with his old friend Waylon Jennings on the song Once and for All. Rock and country fans might remember that Waylon was a young replacement for one of the crickets on a northern tour in 1959 and was one of the lucky ones who didn't get on the plane with Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and J.P. Richardson for that fatal flight, which many still call the day the music died. A side note, another music legend survived that day by taking the bus instead, Dion DeMucci, known to rock and roll fans by his first name, Dion, who was another performer on that winter tour. For more on that story, listen to Buddy Holly, The Day the Music Died, at 1001 Stories for the Road. On August 8, 1975, Williams was nearly killed in a mountain climbing accident. While he was climbing Alec Peak in Montana, the snow beneath him collapsed and he fell almost 500 feet onto a sheer rock face. He suffered multiple skull and facial fractures. He spent two years in recovery, having several reconstructive surgeries in addition to having to learn to talk and sing again. To hide the scars and the disfigurement from the accident, Williams grew a beard and began wearing sunglasses and a cowboy hat. The beard, hat, and sunglasses have since become his signature look, and he's rarely seen without them. By the mid-80s, Hank Williams Jr. was one of country's biggest stars, and he now sits as a legend by his own right in country music. He has been politically active and was a fierce opponent of Barack Obama and his policies, saying exactly what he was thinking while supplying few filters at the time, which caused him to get the boot from ESPN and Fox News and a number of other media-related entities, all of which probably hasn't phased him at all. He's a legend in his own right, and he's still very active in the country music scene as he nears septuagenarian status. And he's also responsible for two other famous country offspring, Hank Williams III and Holly Williams. And a second daughter, Hillary Williams, has also been a performer. We wish best of luck to Hank Williams Jr. and all his kids. Think about it for a minute. How would you have fared as the only son, the stepson, of George Washington? I've always enjoyed stopping to take a look at roadside historic markers. And I remember one. It was either on Old York Road and Route 23 in Maryland, or it was on Route 13 in Maryland. I'm not sure. But I do remember that the sign announced that that was the route George Washington followed when he was taking his only son, stepson Jackie Custis, to King's College in New York. King's College would later become Columbia University. 
Until today, I stored the name Jackie Custis away in the memory box, finally to be answered with this story. John Park Custis, known as Jackie when younger, and Jack as he got older, was around four years old when his mother Martha married George Washington. Custis was one of the two surviving children of Martha Washington's first marriage to Daniel Park Custis. As a result, George Washington became Jackie's legal guardian. Following the death of his sister Martha Park Custis in 1773, Jackie became the sole heir of the Custis estate. His education began at Mount Vernon under the eye of his mother, but became more serious in the fall of 1761 with the arrival of a Scottish tutor named Walter McGowan. When McGowan left for England in the fall of 1767, six years later, George Washington wrote to the Reverend Jonathan Boucher, an Anglican minister who ran a school for boys in Caroline County, Virginia, to see if he would be willing to add Jackie to his roster of pupils. Washington noted that Jackie had been introduced to both Greek and Latin by his tutor and described his stepson as, quote, a boy of good genius, about 14 years of age, untainted in his morals, and of innocent manners, end quote. He considered him, quote, a promising boy, and expressed, quote, anxiety that as the last of the family, who would be coming into a very large fortune, he wanted to see the boy made, quote, fit for more useful purposes than a horse racer. End quote. Which tells us that Jackie liked fast horses, and that like any doting dad, Washington began worrying early about his stepson's work ethic. Writing on January 26, 1769, George Washington sent a short note to Tudor Boucher. In that letter, Washington explained why Custis was late getting back to school after the Christmas holidays, and expressed the hope that, quote, Jackie will apply close to his studies and retrieve the hours he has lost. He promises to do so, and I hope he will. Schoolwork, however, frequently took second place in Jackie's priorities, which caused his stepfather considerable grief. Jackie Custis attended Boucher's school from 1768 to 1773, remaining even after the institution moved to Annapolis, Maryland. Back in those days, if you wanted a good education, you left for a school and you lived there. I recall that our second president, John Adams, sent his son, John Quincy, to study in Europe with a series of teachers and mentors for years. That turned out pretty well as John Quincy Adams became our sixth and very accomplished president. The young teen years for Jackie Custis Washington were very frustrating years for both George Washington and Jackie's teacher, Reverend Boucher. Washington, whose own education had been curtailed by the death of his father, read widely to make up for his deficiencies. He very much wanted Jackie to be given the educational opportunities that he himself had missed. Washington couldn't understand why the young man he helped to raise could not or would not see the need to apply himself harder at school. That was the only path to success from George's point of view. In a particularly telling exchange written when Custis was 16, Washington noted to Boucher that his stepson's mind was centered on quote, dogs, horses, and guns, as well as dress and equipage. Almost as damning from Washington's perspective was Boucher's opinion that, quote, one of the worst symptoms, end quote, about Custis was the fact that, quote, he does not much like books, end quote, even though his schoolmaster had been, quote, 
endeavoring to allure him to it by every artifice I could think of, wrote Boucher. One reason why Jack was so distracted from his schoolwork became obvious in the spring of 1773, when 19-year-old Jack announced his engagement to Eleanor Calvert, the 15-year-old daughter of a prominent Maryland family. Fifteen was Marian age back then. However, George Washington was initially able to convince the young couple to postpone the marriage until after Jack had finished college and could thereby render himself more deserving of the lady and useful to society. But romance was on Jackie's mind and couldn't be postponed. Less than a year later, on February 3, 1774, Custis and Calvert were married. In the intervening months, Martha Washington's remaining daughter, Patsy, had died at Mount Vernon, and the grieving mother wanted her son nearby, and Custis departed New York City for home. In a letter sent to the president of King's College, Washington explained in December of 1773 that his stepson was leaving for good. He wrote, The favorable account you were pleased to transmit me of Mr. Custis's conduct at college gave me very great satisfaction. But these hopes are at an end. And at length I have yielded, contrary to my judgment and much against my wishes, to his quitting college, in order that he may enter soon into a new scene of life, which I think he would be much fitter for some years hence than now, but having his own inclination, the desires of his mother, and the acquiescence of almost all his relatives, to encounter, I did not care, as he was the last of the family, to push my opposition too far, and therefore have submitted to a kind of necessity. Jack and Nellie lived at Abington Plantation and had seven children, four of whom would survive over the next seven years. Despite Washington's frequent disappointments in Custis, the young man described their relationship fondly. In looking back on their relationship, Custis noted in a letter to Washington that, quote, It pleased the Almighty to deprive me at a very early period of life of my father, but I cannot sufficiently adore his goodness in sending me so good a guardian as you, sir. He went on to assure his stepfather that, quote, He best deserves the name of father who acts the part of one and it might be noted that George was equally proud of Jackie. As the Revolutionary War came to a close, Custis decided to join his stepfather at Yorktown, the site of Washington's most celebrated victory. His mother didn't want them to go, fearing for his life, but George accepted his stepson's wishes, not handing him a bayonet, but making him an aide-de-camp and keeping him close. Soon after Cornwallis's surrender, however, Young Jack was one of the hundreds of men who died of camp fever as contagion spread through the crowded camps of both American and British troops. Martha never forgave George for allowing her only remaining child to go to Yorktown. How about being the daughter of a world champion boxer and making the commitment to carry on a 25-year-old grudge match between boxing legends in the ring? against the daughter of your dad's most hated rival. Sounds like fiction, doesn't it? But it happened. First, the background story. Heavyweight boxing champions Joe Frazier and Muhammad Ali may or may not have been role model dads, but their daughters certainly were no sissies. It was well known in the sports world in the 70s that smoking Joe Frazier and the lightning-fast Muhammad Ali hated each other to the point of name-calling, 
and even took part in a scuffle on live TV during a Howard Cosell interview before an upcoming match. The name-calling reached the racial slur point when Ali called Frazier a gorilla and an Uncle Tom who had sold out on his people. So far from the truth it was ridiculous, but it angered Frazier enough to want to pound Ali every time he got close. And although Frazier lost two out of three fights with Ali, he gave him a beating three times that may well have spurred Ali's Parkinson's disease, according to some theorists. Frazier was a puncher. Ali was fast and a puncher, and only a few in his career ever got him in the head, but Frazier was definitely one. Foreman, probably another. Joe Frazier was the world heavyweight boxing champion from February 1970 until January 1973 and fought against Muhammad Ali in the famous Thrilla in Manila in 1975 during TV's golden age of boxing. The youngest of 12 children, Billy Joe Frazier was born January 12, 1944 in Beaufort, South Carolina. His parents, Reuben and Dolly Frazier, were sharecroppers, so the family never had much money. By the age of 15, Frazier, who'd quit school two years before, was on his own. He moved to New York City to live with an older brother and find work. Employment, however, was hard to come by, and to put cash in his pocket, he started stealing cars and selling them to a junkyard in Brooklyn. But Frazier harbored dreams of doing something with his life, and many of those dreams were built around boxing. As a younger kid, back in South Carolina, he had dreamed of becoming the next Joe Lewis, airing out punches at burlap bags that he had filled with leaves and moss. Up north, Frazier's love for boxing didn't subside. After moving to Philadelphia, Frazier found work at a slaughterhouse where he routinely punched sides of beef stored in refrigerated rooms. That scene later inspired Sylvester Stallone as he wrote his 1976 film, Rocky. It wasn't until 1961, though, that Frazier entered the ring and actually began to box. He was rough and undisciplined. But his unpolished talent caught the eye of trainer Yank Durham, and under the direction of Durham, who shortened Frazier's punches and added power to his devastating left hook, the young boxer quickly found success. For three straight years, he was the Middle Atlantic Golden Gloves champion, and he captured the gold medal at the 1964 Summer Olympics in Tokyo. He turned pro in 65 and in just under a year had compiled an 11-0 record. In March of 68, he was crowned heavyweight champion, a result that stemmed in part from Muhammad Ali getting stripped of his heavyweight title the year before, after refusing to be drafted. In 1970, Ali successfully sued to get his boxing license back, setting the stage for sports' highly anticipated matchup between Frazier and Ali. At the age of 12, Ali, his given name Cassius Clay, discovered his talent for boxing through an odd twist of fate. His red Schwinn bike had been stolen, and in the process of looking, he met a police officer, Joe Martin, and told the officer that he wanted to beat up the thief. Well, you better learn how to fight before you start challenging people, Martin reportedly told him at the time. In addition to being a police officer, Martin also trained young boxers at a local gym. So, seeing the interest, he asked Cassius if he would like to visit his gym. Cassius got one look at the gym, the men working out on the bags and in the ring, and he was filled with a sense of destiny. He never looked back from that point on. Ali started working with Martin to learn how to spar, and soon began his boxing career. 
In his first amateur bout in 1954, he won the fight by split decision. He then went on to win the 1956 Golden Gloves Tournament for novices in the light heavyweight class. And three years later, in 59, he won the National Golden Gloves Tournament of Champions, as well as the Amateur Athletic Union's national title for the light heavyweight division. In 1960, Cassius won a spot on the U.S. Olympic boxing team and traveled to Rome, Italy, to compete. At six foot three, Clay was an imposing figure in the ring, but he also became known for his lightning speed and fancy footwork. After winning his first three bouts, he defeated Zygmunt Petrakowski from Poland to win the light heavyweight Olympic gold medal. Four years later, Joe Frazier would also win the Olympic gold medal. And one day in the not-too-distant future, destiny would summon the two to meet on three different occasions to slug it out for the heavyweight title. Muhammad Ali joined the black Muslim group Nation of Islam in 1964. At first he called himself Cassius X, before settling on the name most people are familiar with, Muhammad Ali. He eventually converted to Orthodox Islam during the 70s. Ali not only beat his opponents, he also beat the draft, although the legal battle cost him three years of his professional career. Drafted into the military in April 1967, he refused to serve on the grounds that he was a practicing Muslim minister with religious beliefs that prevented him from fighting, at least fighting in Vietnam. He was arrested for committing a felony and almost immediately stripped of his world title and boxing license. He stayed out of prison while his case was being appealed. He returned to the ring in 1970 with a win over Jerry Quarry, and the U.S. Supreme Court eventually overturned the conviction that had originally sentenced him to five years in June of 1971. Ali's boxing career was storied, his presence in the ring very likely giving the sport of boxing its best years and helped no doubt by the coverage of enthusiastic TV announcers like Howard Cosell, who followed Ali closely and was known for his characteristic twang. Howard Cosell was definitely a character and led a storied life as well, leaving a lot of stories and legend behind. We might do a story on him one day. As far as Ali and Frazier went, although they had great respect for each other's abilities, no two fighters were ever more at odds than Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier. Their first battle, dubbed the Fight of the Century, took place at New York's Madison Square Garden on March 8, 1971. Despite being lighter and shorter than Ali, Frazier, in front of a packed house that included Frank Sinatra, who photographed the match for Life magazine, and Hubert Humphrey, Frazier wore Ali down. Frazier took the fight with a unanimous decision, delivering Ali his first professional defeat. The victory catapulted Frazier to full-fledged stardom and riches. He purchased a 368-acre farm, not far from where he'd grown up, and became the first African-American since Reconstruction to speak in front of the South Carolina legislature. In 1974, Frazier, who'd lost his title the year before to George Foreman, stepped into the ring against Ali again. This time it was Ali who came out victorious. Their final battle came in 1975 in the Philippines, dubbed the Thrilla in Manila. It's considered the sport's greatest fight by some boxing historians. The match lasted 14 bruising rounds before Frazier, battling eyesight issues, was prevented from coming out for the final round by his trainer, Eddie Fuchs. Ali later said of the fight, It was the closest thing to dying that I know of. 
In all, Joe Frazier had 11 children, two of which followed their dad's dream and became professional boxers, son Marvis, and daughter Jackie. His daughter, Jackie Frazier Lid, surprisingly had taken up boxing and eventually fought Ali's daughter, Layla Ali, in a much-hyped fight titled Ali Frazier 4. As you might expect, it was promoted as a continuation of the Ali Frazier grudge match. It was 2001, more than 25 years after Ali and Frazier had fought for the last time, and now it was their daughter's turn to continue the historic rivalry when super middleweights Layla Ali and Jackie Frazier Lid fought at Turning Stone Resort and Casino in Verona, New Jersey. The fight was the first pay-per-view boxing card to be headlined by women. As in the first Ali Frazier bout, both entered the hyped fight sporting undefeated records, 9-0 for Ali and 7-0 for Frazier Lid. And just like their fathers, there was no love lost between the two. Layla carries the same negative attitude as her father, Jackie told the Daily News prior to the fight. The problem with the Ali group is that they want to be admired. Look how beautiful I am. Please. Their refusal to accept another person as an equal competitor is sad. Ali told the Daily News she believed Frazier Lid was trying to ride her father's coattails and didn't take boxing seriously. Jackie ran a law practice at the time and didn't pursue boxing until her 30s. Frazier Lid was 39 the day of the fight. Ali and youth were victorious that night, as her father often was. It's the real and the fake here, Layla told the Daily News then. I'm not going in there to knock her out in the first round. I want to whip her for six good rounds. I resent her trying to get what I've got. I don't take her as seriously as she takes herself. While the fight wasn't even close to being in the same league as their father's legendary duels, it also wasn't the farce that many expected, the Daily News reported at the time. Layla utilized her jab to keep Frazier Lid at bay for the majority of the fight, and for the third time in four tries, an Ali defeated a Frazier, as the younger and more experienced 23-year-old Ali defeated 39-year-old Frazier Lid by a majority decision. Note that if you add six more years, Frazier Lid would have been twice her age. Frazier Lid would go on to win the WIBA light heavyweight title, the WIBF Intercontinental Super Middleweight title, and the UBA World Heavyweight title. Her loss to Layla Ali would be the only blemish of her 15-fight career. She had done a lot to make her father proud. Layla Ali would have an even more prolific career, winning the WIBA, the IWBF, the IBA, and WBC Super Middleweight titles, in addition to IWBF Light Heavyweight. She retired in 2007 with an undefeated 24-0 record, and out of those, 21 knockouts. In part two, we'll tell about the Tory son of one of our nation's founding fathers who spent the Revolutionary War in a Connecticut jail. And don't think the newspapers of the day didn't have fun with that one. In addition to a number of other sons and daughters of parents who became legends. Thank you for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. We love it when you send us reviews. And here's a few recent ones for you. The first one, five stars. Great show. Awesome show. Keep up the great work. Mark and Val, Apple Podcasts, U.S. Next, just the best, five stars. I try every history podcast I can find, and this almost immediately jumped into my top three. 
just trailing Dan Carlin. My job enables me to marathon podcasts for eight hours a day, and commute allows for another three hours. The topics are impeccably chosen. The narrator's voice is comfortable. That from AMAC907, Apple Podcast, Canada. And this one, five stars, awesome, always a great show, Merrill Felker, Apple Podcasts, U.S. And this one, five stars, I find your podcast very interesting, I just don't much care for the UFO stories. And that from Seven Nations 14, U.S. And this one, five stars, two words, fantastic, a great podcast, really engaging stories, I love listening to this on my way home from work. You will love this podcast. That's from Here and Now 109, Apple Podcasts, U.S. And this one, History Packed, five stars, one of the best podcasts out there. John takes you on every suspense-filled ride. No matter what era, he narrates in such a way that keeps you involved. John is one of the, and you're making me blush, greats of our time. It's Ace 1969, Apple Podcasts, U.S. Thank you all so very, very, very much for taking the time to write these reviews. Good or bad, we appreciate them. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story. We'll be back soon with part two of Sons and Daughters.